Hi everyone, I'm David Nesbitt, Content Marketing Manager at Incognia. Thanks for tuning in to the Trust and Safety Mavericks podcast. On this episode of the podcast, Incognia's CEO, Andre Faraz, talks with Garrett Olson, Head of Insurance and Risk for Wolt, about the relationship between identity verification and a platform's growth. Wolt, if you haven't heard of them, is an e-commerce delivery platform that was acquired by DoorDash in 2022. This conversation was originally a session hosted by our friends at Marketplace Risk, and we're sharing it with you here on the podcast so you can enjoy it too. This wasn't really your typical fraud webinar, partially because Garrett has such an interesting and unique vantage point from his position at Wolt. I moderated the discussion, so you'll hear me chime in occasionally. Without further ado, let's jump in. Before we get into anything else, I want to start with an introduction so you can get to know um, Garrett and Andre a little bit. Garrett, would you be willing to start us off by introducing yourself? I'd love to hear about your role and how you describe Wolf for the audience. Yeah, sure. So Garrett Olson, as as my name, I think, and face are on the screen. Uh, hopefully, I look a little bit better live. Uh, so I'm in charge of insurance and risk at Wolt. Wolt is a e-commerce delivery platform. We were acquired by DoorDash in last year. It was when the deal was closed. So we've partnered with them and more or less driving a lot of the international aspects. Uh, 25 of the 29 markets are running under the Wolt product and, and brand. Uh, we also have similar to the Dash Marts, we also have Wolt Marts under our, under our brand as well, the Wolt Markets. I'm in charge of the enterprise risk management framework, uh, policy and all risks, all things quite scary to the organization and, and how we actually monitor those and report those. So I'm involved in the product and the security finance, compliance, and a handful of other areas. And then the moonlighting job is the risk transfer component of that, which is all the insurance, which is usually transferring away those uh, big, bad, scary things, or sometimes the really nice things that we offer to the couriers, like the courier insurance program. Now, prior to Wolt, had been working in the financial sector for, for nearly two decades, as well as setting up CVCs here in some of the large Danish companies like Maersk and F.L. Schmidt. That's just a little bit about myself, and I think we'll get into some more of the granular details later on, and I'll turn it over to Andre. Thanks, Garrett. Yeah, so I'm Andre Faraz, one of the co-founders at Cognia and the CEO of the company. I come from a technical background in computer science, started my career as a security researcher, and for a long time have been working uh, particularly with security and, and identity technologies with a particular emphasis on location-based technologies. And yeah, essentially what Incognit does is we're a company in the digital identity space. We brought to market this concept of location fingerprinting, where we have combined uh, device fingerprinting capabilities with very precise location data to create a more stable identifier so that we can use that for both fraud prevention, but also to provide a better user experience when customers are authenticating to online services by removing some of the friction that we encounter with MFA. So. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, excited for the discussion. And David, I'll send it back to you. Thanks, Andre. So we've got some great topics we're going to cover today and some great expertise to um, listen to and to learn from. And so we'll jump right in. But first, um, here's where we're going today in our session. We're going to start by talking about how identity is the cornerstone in trust and safety, um, and then talk a bit about when that breaks down, how fraud starts to creep in, talk about some real world examples of what that looks like. 
Um, and then we'll talk about when you have identity and fraud issues, how that creates risk and ripple effects that go way beyond just the bottom line, but to a lot of elements of company strategy. Um, and then last, we're bringing it back to fraud prevention and how this influences a platform strategy and its ability to grow and scale. So I think we're going to have a great conversation around these things. Really interested to hear both these guys' perspectives on these topics. So first, without further ado, we're talking about how identity is the cornerstone of trust and safety. And Andre, we've got a first question there. Uh, why don't you kick us off with that first question for Garrett? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Garrett, like I've heard your, your background. It was really impressive. I uh, work in different industries. But when it when it comes to trust and safety in particular, like why do you think identity is, is, is so important to address some of these challenges? Yeah, I mean, if I speak about the, my current organization, I think that's probably one of the more relevant ones where people actually probably had a, a dasher or a, a world courier at their door, specifically in the past or absolutely because of COVID, right? But I think one of the biggest things, like the simple truth is really that fake identities enable adverse behaviors. And those ad be behaviors essentially create a lack of trust uh, for the platform, for all the types of users on the platform. And essentially that trust once eroded, it really is a barrier to the customer acquisition, right? And that entire journey of building that trust, that return customer and acquiring customers is, is costly, right? So that goes a little bit into the bottom line. And I think one of the one of the areas that's really, really important for us is that at the end of the day, knowing who is on the platform, not necessarily what they're doing, because in a sense, we really understand how that's happening through the data, but really who's on the platform builds the trust and the confidence and enhances the reputation that that customers and or merchants specifically would come back to us before our peers, right? And I think that that trust is extremely what's what's most important, right? And I kind of like throw that back back to you, Andre, because I think you you look on the other side of the coin, right? And how do you actually see the importance of the identity in the in that trust and safety space? Well, for sure, like I see it as as a cornerstone. Like identity is is an interesting thing, right? Because like for any person to access an online service, this person has to access it through a particular device. And this person has to be somewhere in the world, right? So the way we like to think about identity at Incognito is is from these two angles, right? So understanding the device and understanding where this user is uh, informs us a lot on on who's that individual. And when you combine this with uh, like deeper like identity verification capabilities, like for example, running a, a proper KYC process, uh, like analyzing documents, matching that to biometric information. You can have a really powerful understanding about who's that individual, right? And once you have that, once you, you're able to establish that, then everything else becomes much easier, right? Because then you have like a strong foundation to build this relationship with this user and gain trust over time, right? Trust is, is something that like varies over time. Like the more you know that customer, the more they, they come back to your platform and uh, don't do anything wrong, the more you can enable them to do more things, right? You can like provide more credit, for example. You can provide more like access to to features, like to premium features, for example, and things like that. On the other hand, if you have a strong foundation on identifying these individuals and you you have a good way to identify the bad actors and you can leave them out, 
the entire ecosystem benefits, right? Like the, the users that use your platform as like just a, a consumer, for example, ordering food, they will continue to do that because they won't be scanned by a driver, for example, or they won't buy like uh, food from a, a, a fake restaurant and things like that. Same applies to the other side, right? Like if, if you have a uh, strong ability to verify like all of these consumers are uh, legitimate users and they're not going to try to scam the drivers because it, it also happens the, the other way around, right? You will be able to convince more people to become a driver on your platform, et cetera. So it is essential to the business. It's not just the thing that it is like used to prevent fraud and like save the bottom line, but really to enable the company to be trusted by the different stakeholders that are part of that lottery ecosystem. So yeah, super, super important. And I'd say that analyzing the data in very like detail oriented way is extremely important to having a good understanding about that, that identity. One of the things that you mentioned, I think is like really interesting, right? Because on these platforms, right, there's, there's data, right? But there's transactional data. There is personal data in regards to home addresses. There is not related to transaction, but there's financial data in regards to kind of the emergence and the quantity of purchases, right? So I think people need to appreciate the fact that like knowing why or how the person is on the platform, what they're specifically doing with that information, like those types of things are extremely important for a regulatory purpose, for a health and safety purpose, for a physical safety purpose. There's many different reasons why. So like the data, and I think one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is absolutely critical is around the device. I think just the data and looking at those peaks and anomalies throughout specific periods is always interesting. But when you start layering on those specific components like device data, that is extremely important, specifically when you are talking with the police or emergency services or other types of entities that you want to help, right? Not hinder on those types of activities. So I think the device data that you that you say, and there's obviously a lot more, but I think the device data is it's an amazing point that you make. Yeah, speaking of the data, another question I have for you is, is in regards to when it comes to identity verification at World, like what is the top priority for you? Like what what do you look for? And another question on top of that is like which of these different stakeholders you have on your platform are are the most challenging to to verify? So there's a handful of different types of products and services that are, that are moving uh, through the platform, right? If we actually look at like the goods, right? You have everything from alcohol to medicine or even to perishables like flowers. Okay, yeah, flowers. But essentially, like you said, you could essentially having fraudulent type of purchases where people are buying flowers, right? But essentially, they could be either money laundering or they could essentially be carjacking, right? Because the, the they've ordered flowers, a simple thing, but actually don't want the flowers, they want the courier's car, right? Sounds weird, it happens, right? Trust me, 29 countries, there's always bound to have these like nice, unique stories. Uh, so it's always good to share, not the details, but the the broader sense that those things happen. And, and this is why identity verification is important. Customers and couriers, specifically in our space, are probably the most critical because there is the liability component, right, on, on the customer side that we're making sure that the customer is actually getting what they're ordered and or we're delivering it to the right person, not a child or a minor or someone else that, that shouldn't be getting those specific items. 
The second thing is, is that we're abiding uh, by all the laws and regulations because of those controlled substances specifically, right? And last but not least, I think on the courier side, there's a reputational aspect. One, we want to make sure that they're actually safe, right? Like if incidences are happening, if the phone hasn't been moving around for the right thing, when we call medical services, that the information that we're giving to the person, right? Not that we're giving the blood type of the person or to to the emergency services, but when we tell them who the person is and where they're located, when they show up, that it's actually that person that's actually laying there in the street that's had an actual accident, right? So there is courier partners and customers are the most important. On the courier side, we want to make sure that the actors that are delivering the specific items are representing the organization in the way that we would prefer, as well as the customers are essentially safe and and confident in what they're ordering and that the person at their door (laughs) is the right person that doesn't decide to go beyond the door threshold for any specific reasons. And those things, again, are somewhat related to, to the identity. You're never, ever going to stop all of these adverse activities, but you significantly reduce a lot of these activities when you have certain verification process throughout the onboarding as well as through the activity, right? Yeah, I would say like predominantly, I guess, and and last but not least, again, I always go back, we want the, the communities that we operate in to be a lot better, right? They're great, but we want them to be better. And to do that, we want to be a sustainable and and corporate citizen. And that requires us to make sure that we're following the laws and that whenever asked upon for specific information, we're able to provide that, whether it's about the person or the behavior or the activity, right? And I think being able to have those layers of identification, right? It's not just the face that we're talking about always, going back to that device, that information is always critical when there's specific things that need to be solved, investigated, looked at, or reviewed, right? Not necessarily always about bad things. It could be about good things, right? Specifically, maybe if you were looking around like emissions or sustainability type of targets, there is also interesting things that goes into what kind of vehicles and how that vehicle is related to a person and et cetera, et cetera. So there's also positives, not always talking about the negative situations, there is positives around how that identity can be provided to the regulators. But yeah, let's go on to the other side, because I don't think, I think you have as in, as in many interesting stories as I do, but how do you balance the, the data privacy and identity verification? I think that's probably something that the people want to understand because it's always an interesting yeah. topic for me as well. It is. Yeah. And, and it's challenging, right? Because like on the one hand, you, you need to like, analyze a lot of data so you ensure that like that identity is real and and the person behind that device is really that individual but on the other hand you you have like uh privacy and new privacy regulations like gdpr and ccpa and probably there'll be a, a like new regulations in the future so how to address that well the way we we like to think about it at incognito is we and, and that actually enforced like even the name of the company that comes from incognito we have this like very deep understanding on our end about the device and its behavior but incognito doesn't get into the pii data so we don't have for example the names phone numbers email addresses those kind of things who holds that data is is actually our customer and then we we assign like a a, a common identifier to refer to that individual but then we don't 
gain visibility about that. And our customer doesn't gain visibility about, for example, all of the detailed like location behaviors from that device and things like that. So we keep that separate, particularly because, uh, especially coming from a, a security background, it is a fact that it's only a matter of time for any company, for any database, for a data breach to happen, right? Uh, there is no, and there, there won't be any perfect system from a security standpoint. So basically like keeping these things separate puts us in a, in a safer position and also our customers in a safer position, because then it is less likely that a data breach would compromise, for example, these users in a way that, uh, we would see like where people were, which places did they go and, and things like that. That would be a, a massive problem, right? So in this case, the data breach would have to happen on both sides. And then there would be like a need for someone to merge that data and do the, the analysis. So basically we make it a lot more difficult for that to happen. So I think that's, that's one thing, like keeping those things separate, like device and device behavior data separate from PII data, trying to find a common identifier to relate these things. And also trying to find other data attributes where you could bind these two things. So for example, one particular thing that we have been doing is when the user is going through the IDB process, right? Usually they need to share some sort of uh, address information, usually their home address. And so for example, here in the US, uh, when they're scanning their driver's license, there is an address information there, right? Or in other countries, they would have other ways to providing that type of information. And address data is interesting because it is something that you can bind to the device's behavior, right? So when you capture that address, you can then analyze like, okay, where does this device goes? How many times has this device been to this particular address, right? And depending on that, you're able to find a very interesting way to, to bind the device to the identity without necessarily having to expose other pieces of information, like the user's name, phone number, email address and things like that. So that was one of the strategies that we have employed to do this uh, like stronger binding between devices and identity, but still keeping things separate, like PII on one side, like behavioral data on the other. I think that's, that was an important thing. And then the other piece is, is mainly about being transparent with consumers and, and, and with the, the end users, right? So for example, before collecting the location data, we always recommend our customers to be very transparent on the way they communicate that to users. Like, why are you using this type of data? And we see that the response is completely different depending on the, the messaging. So for example, we saw customers that were simply asking for location permissions. Like I want to access your location data, either like a bank or marketplace, things like that. Opt-in rates were really low, like 40, 50% max. And we saw a big difference when the same organizations changed the way they, they approached the users and started explicitly saying the location data will be used for fraud prevention and security purposes. Opt-in rates went up to 90%. Mm. So when users understand like, why am I sharing this data with this uh, food delivery app, for example, with this banking application, they want to understand why are they uh, sharing this, this information, right? And we saw a very big difference when customers started to, to be more transparent with their users. I'd say that's another thing. Being clear to your user that this data will be used for like a, a legitimate re reason, this data will be used to protect them, makes it easier for just to understand and to want to share that information with, with the app. Because once they do that, 
it is become going to become harder for a bad actor to, for example, take over their accounts and and, and do those, those kind of bad things. That's great. Love this conversation so far. Let's move on to the next section for the sake of time. Now, uh, we want to talk next about we've established identity as this cornerstone, but at times that's going to break down. When it does break down, how does fraud start to creep in? And I think, Garrett, you've got the first question here for Andre. Absolutely. Thanks. So Incognia has a very wide angle view on, on fraud trends globally. What are what, some of the ways that you're seeing identity issues turn into fraud? Yeah, well, what's particularly interesting is that we, we have been working in many different industries like marketplaces, financial services, but also like gaming, entertainment apps, social media apps, etc. And what's interesting is that actually pretty much every like broad use case boils down to identity and particularly to, to two core issues when it comes to account security, which is fake accounts and account takeovers. Like usually these are the two ways in which a fraudster would start attacking an organization. But then the downstream effect, they're different. Uh, the implications are completely different for every industry. So for example, in the financial services industry, a fake account would probably result in two things, money laundering or credit fraud, right? An account takeover would usually result in like the fraudster wiping out the funds on that account and sending it somewhere else. But when it, when we look at marketplaces, for example, on like a food delivery marketplace, a fake account on the consumer app is probably being created because they want to abuse on promotions for new customers. Right, so they're going to create like tons of accounts, like dozens of of accounts on the platform, and they will eat with discounts for some time. Right, so usually the motivations are different, but in the end, like the the attack is is, is very similar. I'd say. Some of the most interesting situations I, I, I've seen, I'll bring one from the food delivery industry that was very impressive, like very smart move by the fraudsters, but we, we were able to catch them. Was the, there was a food delivery platform that, that was facing this issue where the driver would pick up the food and then like in the same minutes, they would cancel the order. So then the consumer would receive a notification on their phone, like, oh, your order was canceled. Two minutes later, the driver would show up at your front door and say, I'm sorry, there was a bug in the application here. Uh, your order wasn't canceled. Here's the food. Here's the receipt. It's all good. But the payment didn't go through. And uh, the, the end user already saw that the payment like, came back, right? So, okay, everything checks out, looks legit. And then the, the driver had a portable POS and they would say, but then you can pay here on my POS. But the POS was tempered. And when the driver typed $50, actually, it was 5000 You would swipe your credit card. The driver would go away. When you check your banking app, you just spend $5,000 in a meal. So that was like very tricky because like the attack was happening outside the platform. Right. The platform mm-hmm. didn't have visibility about that POS. They have no idea about like if the, the, the driver went there afterwards because they shut down the app. So how would the platform fight back? Right? In this case, it came back to identity right? because we were able to see, okay, 
which of the devices are involved in this type of activity? Okay, we have all of these devices here. Like in, in, in which locations are these devices mostly used? These locations. So this is probably where the bad actors live. So what we're going to do is we're going to block all, all of those devices. And if we see any new device that demonstrates any behavior that is similar to that, that to those devices that we have uh, flagged, uh, for example, if they try to create a new account from the same home, or if they try to access someone else's account from that same location, then we're going to block that. Six months later, that problem doesn't exist anymore. We were able to bring it down by like 99%. Why? Because we went all the way down to really understanding the identity, understanding the device, understanding the behavior associated with that device, and blocking not only those bad devices, but any new device that would come to the network that would indicate that it, it was still the same person because that individual, right? They, they could keep creating new accounts. If the KYC process wasn't very good, they would be able to use someone else's document, to keep creating new accounts or using someone else's accounts. So I'd say that was one of the most complex cases we found in, in this industry in particular. But yeah, I think we could spend like, 10 hours here just discussing different situations I've seen so far. Uh, but in the end, like I'd say if companies like get to that understanding that identity is the cornerstone of trust and focus on that and also understand that every user and dependent on the, the service will have to access the service through a device and from a location and you map these two things really well, then you can resolve identity in a much more efficient way. So speaking of the complexity of this, this space, right, you have couriers and you have consumers and you have merchants and I've seen like one scamming each other in the space. How do you think about liability in such a complex environment? Like, yeah, well, first I just want to say like, there's a lot of really good people. We are highlighting some of the worst cases, but there's like hundreds of millions of transactions happening every single year Absolutely. that are actually flawless. So I just want everyone to know that like we are cherry picking use cases to to educate you, not that this is like the status quo or some type of systemic systemic issue. But joking aside from the liability perspective, right, which is now I take the risk and put the, the insurance head on, it's actually quite interesting, right? One, we have the complexity of multiple markets. Two, you have the complexity of those three three units, sometimes frauding each other or sometimes not, or sometimes frauding the platform, which is technically the fourth person in that tripartite relationship, right? The fraud is actually, as you had mentioned in, in the use case, right? pretty different in each group, right? You have the, some of the transactional fraud from customers and merchants. You have identity fraud, which could be from a financial gain or for it could be for other types of gains. And you also have liability issues that creep into that, right? As I had mentioned earlier in the kind of the first segment, which is around the types of controlled substances that we're actually doing. You also have individual liabilities because of that person-to-person -person contact that's actually happening between those three parties. You also have liability because the person is out on the street. So you actually have liability out into the community, right? Let's just say that the wrong person or a person without a driver's license is driving a motorized vehicle and creates an accident. Or sitting here in Denmark, we got a lot of bicycles. We got more bicycles than people. There's a lot of accidents. You don't necessarily need an ID 
to ride a bicycle, but trust me, the cars, the person's car that they drove into has an ID or some type of motor vehicle registration. And I think that's when this identity and the liability components start bleeding together. And of course, we want to know who caused the incident to make sure that it gets resolved, right? On the flip side, Walt, uh, one thing that's quite interesting is we have a payments institution uh, in Finland, right? That is running uh, predominantly most of or all of uh, the European markets. So we actually have uh, regulatory reporting because of it being a payments institution on some of these AML peaks, right? And as you mentioned, that is obviously something that we're quite seeing. So from a reporting perspective, there's definitely something that we're constantly monitoring. So that transactional piece but you start moving into other use cases, which gets more unique outside the platform, as you had mentioned, right? Where it actually gets quite interesting is then when you start looking at the different countries that we're in, right? So we're in 25 countries specifically for Wolt, and the behaviors of those three parties are very different, right? Working and living in Europe and in North America and South America, just culturally, things are different. The way that they actually look at liability or the way that they actually use insurances as some force of supplementary income, right? So what we've actually done is we've essentially localized, we have tools and we have services and we're, and we're partnering with organizations like Incognia, right? to actually address that and push those specific tools into the front line. And that is one of the more different aspects, right? Where we don't have a full-blown trust and safety organization. We actually have fully empowered local teams that are using global tools, but very much localized to the specific use cases and, and cultures, which allows for a better user experience because they know their people, right? They know what their friends or what they used to do or what they are seeing the news. And it's a lot better for them to be able to utilize uh, the tools or provide the appropriate use cases to organizations like Incognia, right? But really at the end of the day, the, the variety of products and services, the different types of vehicles, the different types of actors, there's a huge liability landscape and really identity. And it doesn't have to be person, as you mentioned, it doesn't have to be PII, but there's unique identifiers that are associated with specific behaviors that we can track on an aggregated level to start understanding where those peaks are. And that's when we start addressing that concern, whether it's through operational changes, strategic changes, or risk transfer mechanisms to just say, listen, that's going to happen. We can't do anything about it. So Let's take some of it on ourselves, but make sure that actually someone else is helping us with that from an insurance perspective, right? That's great. Yeah, so we've got the last two sections that we're going to try to get through them a little bit quicker since we've had some great conversation in the first two so far. I knew it was going to happen. I wish we could take more time. So for the next section, I think Garrett, you'll start us off with the first question here, but we're going to talk here about how identity and fraud issues create risk and ripple effects that go into company strategy. So Garrett, why don't you kick us off with that first question? Sure. Uh, so Andre, like, what are some of the less obvious ways you're seeing identity and fraud negatively affecting a company's health and success? And specifically, like, what are many of these companies not recognizing, right? You don't know what you don't know, right? And I think like organizations like yourself, you know a little bit more. And so that's why we got to work with someone like you. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, well, I I'd say one thing that on our end usually looks obvious, but many times we, we encounter the situation that the reaction is, is, is all quite similar is for marketplaces in particular, we see very little collaboration between the fraud and risk departments and the marketing departments. And actually these two could benefit a lot if they, they had a, a like better relationship and, and more collaboration between these things. Because for example, uh, one thing that we see a lot when we're running like pilots with customers is like fake accounts leading to things like coupon abuse, for example. Yeah. And when you go a little bit deeper and then you uh, start at, like asking a lot of questions, then you realize like, okay, the, the marketing departments was actually interpreting this as just like, oh, my marketing campaign didn't work that well. Users were not sticking to the platform. Like, and that's true. Not really. That's, that's not really true. And that's actually fraud. And if the two departments were working together and cleaning that out before that coupon was, was lost, right? Because you're basically like giving coupons to the same person over and over again you're not really acquiring any any new customer your marketing campaign could be a lot more efficient right if you were able to optimize that piece then the marketing team would probably be delivering like three four or five times the value that they're currently delivering so that was one thing that we have identified as as a very common thing within marketplaces and when we help these companies optimize that piece of the the, the profit then customer acquisition campaigns start being a lot more effective so that's one thing. Another, which is quite interesting, and, and it's very difficult to identify, and we were talking about AML earlier, right, is collusion, right? So for example, the same individual would have a merchant account or a driver account or courier account or uh, in a consumer account. And then this individual will like usually have something in common. Uh, it's e either like, uh, two different devices, but both are in the same place or both are connected to the same network or it's all happening in the same device. So if you focus on uh, analyzing these types of, of data points like device, network, location, you're able to detect that kind of collusion. So that's that's another thing that we, we tend to see a lot. When it comes to device in particular, I think there are two specific aspects that are, that are quite interesting. The first one is that Every fraudster knows that pretty much every company that is taking fraud prevention seriously is identifying these devices, right? The, the company like is using some sort of device fingerprinting methodology. And as a result, when, when these fraudsters know about that, they try to find ways to make that device look, look different every time they access the platform, right? The most extreme case is when they go to the point of resetting that device to factory settings. Takes a little bit longer, a few minutes or, or, or hours, depending on the device. But then they come back with a device that looks completely clean, right? So how do you resolve that type of situation? And we, we figured that by leveraging precise location data, you could actually address that. Because for example, if you've seen like an iPhone 12 in apartment X committing fraud, and then two hours later, we see a clean iPhone 12 in the same apartment, well, we know that it's the same, the same person behind it. So uh, we're able to more proactively block it. We don't need to wait for that device to do something wrong again, so we can block it. Right. And the the other aspect is that, for the same reason, 
browsers also have been starting to leverage multiple devices. We recently mapped that about 60% of the fraudsters, they operate with more than one device. In some cases, like more extreme situations, we call those uh, places fraud farms. Those are basically places that have like 20, 30, 50 devices operating, all trying to attack usually the same organization. Uh, so if we're able to find those connections between the devices, we can also use this type of data more, more effectively. Uh, but yeah, in the end, if you have a good understanding about the, the identity and can relate that to all of the same individual, then you're able to address those things like the marketing campaigns and making customer position campaigns a lot more effective, for example. So yeah, I was just talking about growth, right? And customer position campaigns. So I, I like to ask you an, another question, which is how does fraud and growth conflict or how can fraud and growth frankly be the same thing? Uh, the, the fraud prevention athletes help grow. Like I, I brought one example, but, but, uh, I'd love to hear your, your perspective on, on that. And if you think that uh, fraud could be also a barrier for, for growth, especially in the long term. Yeah, for sure. I think being in the, in the startup space now for, I don't even know, like ne nearly 10 years, I would say that like, it's an interesting conversation because you have this risk-taking mentality, right? Already inherently done. And I think like, from my perspective, with a risk and insurance background, I always kind of like always fall back to like, what's the overarching like risk appetite, right? Is that understood? Is it understood by the people that are actually handling the most kind of risk? And I'm not saying that it should be like tying the organization down to inhibit growth. There's obviously areas where we know that the wheels should be shaking and it really should be a little bit risky because you have to uh, get specific type of growth to continue your funding or to enter into a new market. So you've just accepted that, but at least the people know what the guardrails are to kind of that. And it's not a hard line, but at least they kind of know like where it is. So I always kind of always start with like the overarching risk appetite, because then you can push it to the line and you can go over the line when you want to. Right. But if you don't know where the line is and you're only playing over the line all the time, then it's absolutely going to come back and bite you. Like it will. It does because really what are we talking about? It's still a confidence in your product, right? By the customers with you, you will never have growth. If the customer doesn't love what you're doing, you're not going to grow. Like maybe at the very beginning because you've juiced it, but like really probably not going to happen. So for, for me, there's like kind of really two areas. And I think you touched on it and you really like knocked it out of the park because really customers, customer centricity. Customer centricity requires trust and data and behavioral analysis. But if you're building your product for the customer and it's not actually the customer, because like you said, there's a fraud farm creating 10 customers, are you actually generating or developing your product for the actual customer or for some type of fictitious demographic, right? So making sure that the data and the environment that you're basing your decisions on is extremely reliable, not only for product and operational teams, but also for your investors and your advisors, right? That they need to know that the numbers that you're putting in front of them have some level of credibility. We all know what the game is, but really like it can't be 80% uh, fictitious numbers because of the fraud font, right? On the other side, where I would go back with, with my examples is on the courier side, 
the adverse behaviors of couriers definitely erode our reputation, right? Like hand, hands down, no matter what, what they do, specifically the negatives will always be coming out, right? So not just for the brand, but also for other couriers, right? Like there's a lot of the individuals that are working that on a full time. And if they're having to go and be forced to go and employ them or forced to make them wear certain clothes or forced to track them specifically, that starts removing why they are working as an independent contractor. You start removing that flexibility because of certain adverse behaviors of a very small population, right? So the couriers themselves actually get hurt by the bad couriers. But also regulators, merchants, and customers, they start raising their hand and be like, dude, I don't want to be on this platform. This whole thing is a little bit dodgy. I, I don't really want to do this. Negative press early on. People, we can say, ah, negative press is good press. Negative press early on, specifically the negligence, shows negligence, right? In those kind of, and it scares, it scares the wrong people, right? It scares your investors. It scares potential customers. So build things fast and break things and all of that stuff is good. But if you start reducing the confidence in key stakeholders, investors or customers, which is really what you're building your product for, and I'm not talk just talking about a platform, you're you're not going to grow. Like just hands down, I don't think I don't think you're going to grow. And I'll kind of like leave it at that because I think I want to have a little bit of time if there's any questions that come in. So I'll, I'll try to like hold myself because I love this topic. That's great. Thanks, Garrett. Our last section is about how fraud prevention now influences the ability of a platform, influences its strategy, its ability to grow and scale. We've been talking about that a bit, um, and we've got about probably eight minutes for this section, so maybe do a bit of lightning round answers. Um, but Garrett, you have a question there for Andre about fraud prevention work. Want to start there? Yeah. And working across multiple industries, I'm excited to hear what this answer is, right? But do you feel like fraud prevention work is undervalued at many organizations? I would say yes, but it's actually improving. So one, one example, right? It's very common to see fraud prevention teams that don't have their own engineering resources, right? They have to borrow from other teams. So they have to be like, oh, I'm sorry, like I can't integrate this now because they need to ask permission to the other team so they, they can prioritize that on the roadmap. Like, and even in situations where like that organization is currently under attack, right? And they still need to yeah. ask for permission to uh, integrate something new or change something in the system so they can, they, they can start blocking that. So I'd say that's one example where I believe that many companies could and should be investing more if they stop thinking about fraud prevention as a cost center, but really as an area where you can like improve efficiency of your business, um, improve the bottom line, but also even influence the growth strategy, right? As, as I was uh, talking a little bit earlier, right? Like if you do a good job at the IDP moment, you can actually enable the marketing teams to be more effective with their customer acquisition campaigns. So uh, I think that mentality is changing. I think the recent downturn we saw in the tech space has empowered the fraud prevention teams a bit more. They have become more influential because like the priorities have shifted from like growth at all costs to like efficient growth. So I think that also helped the fraud organizations become more influential. But I'd say there's still a long way to go for the fraud departments at most organizations to be 
respected and and have the resources that they, they they should have. So yeah, that's that's my take on that. But but I see significant improvement happening, particularly in the in the most recent months. Andre, um, you want to stop with our last question? Sure. Uh, so yeah, the, the the last question I have for you, Garrett, and, and really appreciate the time here. It was really really interesting conversation. It's great to hear your takes. Is like going back to this topic of like fraud and, and growth, right? Like how how does fraud prevention enables growth at at, at Vault? Yeah, awesome, and, and I agree, Andre. It's been a it's been a great conversation. So Vault, being a Scandinavian Nordic probably a better thing to say with with Finland not necessarily being in Scandinavia but I would say from a Nordic principles right the organization has always been like this transparent moral high ground very much that we want to treat everyone right that tripartite relationship and specifically the communities that we operate in and so I'm going to keep it pretty short right where and what has fraud enabled prevention enabled Wolt to specifically do one, it's reliability in our financial figures, right? When we were growing and those investors were allowing us to move into specific markets and, and build our product and, and help us become who we are today. That was obviously the teams, but the money from the investors helped, right? Number two is that it enhanced our reputation with the customers and the merchants in all of those specific markets, right? From a handful of different reasons, throughout COVID, even till to this day, right? They know that the customers, the couriers and the merchants that we're putting on to our platform have the appropriate onboarding and and vetting process, right? The third thing is that because of what we're doing, we can act, the speed to act, the speed to resolve. And that's always extremely critical if there's a concerned customer, a concerned merchant, or even a concerned courier. And last but not least, it's strengthened the credibility with the investors, our insurers, regulators, and the like. I can't say enough about when we've had conversations on our DNO and when we've had conversations specifically on our cyber and when the underwriters and the brokers and like when they leave the meeting, I think they learn more about their own industry or specific questions that they should be asking others from our team, it's only a testament to some of the things that we've been able to do and, and the team that we've been able to bring in. And I think that's, I think one of the other things that goes back to that question that I asked you is, is that I think making sure that not only there's dedicated resources, but actually that we're hiring people that are really passionate and that like have some level of experience and want to develop that area for the future, not to solve last year's problems, but to solve future problems that may not exist today, right? Yep. That's, that's a great point. And and, and wanted to, to comment on, on, on one of the things you, you've mentioned, which is the, the reputation with customers and merchants, right? Because that's directly related to customer retention, right? And, and if you, your platform doesn't have like good retention metrics, in the end of the day, that's a leaky bucket. Right? Marketing will continue to pour resources and like new campaigns and new customers would, would, would come in. But if you're not able to maintain them on the platform and they like have them come back to your service, you're not really growing, right? Like your yeah. your new customer metric is going up, but in the end, like your business is, is, is not growing. So having a strong reputation is extremely important because we're talking about in most of these cases here, we're talking about recurring services. Right? You you have to eat every single day. <laughs> so food delivery is certainly a service that you don't use only one time. So yeah, that's that's very important. The reputation piece is extremely important. David, any any questions from the audience? 
Yeah, definitely. So Andre Garrett, thanks. That was great. Uh, we do have a bit of time for Q&A. And so don't hesitate to type in more questions either to the chat or the Q&A. First one, this one's going to be for Andre. Andre, can you explain how the combination of device and location can help delivery platforms identify courier account sharing? Courier account sharing. Yeah, that's that's actually a very common problem, yeah. especially when when a courier gets banned, then they they'll like call their friend and say, "Hey, I'm, I'm out of the platform. Uh, can you give me your your credentials?" So that's that's a real problem. And they were banned for a reason, right? There's yeah, always a reason. So <laughs> if if they they circumvent that just by simply asking the their friend's password, you didn't do much. So. So yeah, uh, when it comes to device and location, uh, as I mentioned before, like to access any online service, the user has to do that through a device and from a physical location, right? So if you have these two data points and you're able to understand the behavior of that device, particularly the location behavior, you're able to find these anomalies, right? So you're going to see, okay, usually like this is where this courier goes, this is where they live. This is like the, the location they go most frequently. And they always do this from this device. And now suddenly we see this account being accessed from another device and uh, the location patterns don't match, right? So then that's a very strong indication that in that case, the, the courier might be someone else, might be that friend that just called them asking for that password. So I'd say that would be the way to analyze that in case that happens, right? Obviously, you don't want to block a good courier just because they bought a new phone, right? So how do you determine like, okay, is this fraud? Is, is it not? You can go back to the to the location data, right? So if I bought a new phone and I'm setting up my account on this new device, uh, we feel in our network that about 95% of new device setups occur from the user's home address, right? So if we find that, uh, we can verify that new device right away. We can say, okay, this new device is validated and the courier can continue using the service normally. So nothing will change. They won't be like required to do a new IDV process, like nothing like that. As simple as, okay, this device was recognized at the user's home. Fine, continue using. Uh, we don't need to ask any, any additional questions. So it's important to use the data not only to block the bad actors, but also to enable the good ones to experience a more seamless uh, authentication and, and verification process. Andre, I think one of the things that we've been like looking at and in, in, in partnering with a handful of different companies or looking at the appropriate solutions, right, is more or less like a two-factor authentication, specifically when you start seeing individuals with multiple devices. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. you'll see someone with like eight to 10 devices, like two, three, like yep. that could make sense because of different vehicles, ones for orders, ones for delivery. But when you start getting up to a handful of devices, you have to start getting into some level of like facial or biometric mm -hmm. verifications, phone calls, right? text messages back with specific codes to essentially put into the app. So there's a handful of different ways that the organizations, not just ourselves, but our industry is trying to tackle those. Um, but it is a, it is an issue. Account sharing is definitely one of the areas that, that of, of course, we continually are, are tackling because, yeah, it's a whack-a-mole a little yep. bit on that one. Yep. And one comment on that, um, if, if taking the, the MFA route, always important to 
ensure that the solution is fishing resistant because for example OTPs uh, can be fished and, and things like that so it's important to to use that as well so yeah it's always a combination right sometimes you you like redo the IGD process like requiring like facial recognition etc but it's, it's also uh, relevant to identify the situations in which you don't need to do that uh, because yeah. then you can provide a seamless experience exactly yeah, we've got maybe two minutes for one more question and um, had a question for Garrett come in. Uh, we'll see if this is one that you feel like a uh, good fit for you. How does Wolt deal with customer fraud and ensure ensuring identity without making authentication too lengthy and complex? So the identity verification for the customer is actually a pretty simple process, right? When you're essentially doing the account registration. But I think the the areas that I can discuss uh, on on this type of forum is specifically around the transactional data, right? It's specifically around the amounts, the frequency, the time of day, and the time of merchants that they're actually doing it. So there's a handful of different levels that we're looking at the transactional data, even the types of cards that are being used. So the customer fraud is actually more at the transactional level, less the actual verification of the person. That's important, right? When I talk about like the controlled substances, but really customer is predominantly focused right now uh, because of that's where you have the leakage is, 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 around the, is around the transactional. And we have appropriate tooling that pretty much nips that right away, right? And I don't think we have to have very long or very much of an issue. This isn't something that takes like days or weeks to like identify that we're talking about like within a handful of transactions so probably within minutes maximum hours that we can kind of close that down i hope you enjoyed this episode of trust and safety mavericks subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode and follow incognite and me under for us on linkedin and twitter